as we're in this series on abiding in Jesus, we're learning what it means to be with Jesus, to be rooted and anchored and and present with him, just like a, a branch is rooted and attached to the vine. And in many ways, as I started my sermon last week with a confession, I realized this is a needed course correction to an overemphasis, I think, that I've given in my teaching and my leadership. For many, many years, actually my entire ministry, I would say, I've emphasized the mind and not given equal attention and time and nurturing to the other parts of who we are as people. And so I think what we end up having in our church over years of teaching is many brains on sticks walking around. People who maybe understand the Word of God, who love the Word of God, who know doctrine, who can quote you answers to deep theological questions, and yet that knowledge hasn't done the hard work of reshaping your desires, reshaping your behaviors, reshaping how you live, how you sacrifice. And so what we're wanting to do, and this is not just a sermon series that I'm looking at for this month that's just going to end. And yes, we're going to only spend a little bit of time right now, but I'm hoping to weave and and thread throughout our life of our church over years, and maybe even take a decade, to begin to experience God and what it means to be with Him as full people. Yes, minds, but our hearts, our hands, our feet, our dreams, our desires, our whole being being reshaped by being with Jesus. And we're going to look at uh, practices for the next four weeks. And this is not all the practices. It's just four, I think, core fundamental marks of Jesus' life. Remember last week, if you were with us, I said that Jesus was fully man. We know that. He's fully God. But I think fully man, we tend to emphasize the God part and sometimes forget he was the perfect person, which means the way he lived life He was the most peaceful, the most restful, the most joyful person who ever lived. Which means if you want to experience humanity as God made us in his image fully, we should look at how Jesus lived his life and begin to learn from how he lived. He didn't do the things he did just because he was trying to check off some list of what it means to be a religious person. He lived a full life as a human And so as we follow his practices of life, maybe we begin to to tap into what it really means to be fully human, what it means to be fully flourishing as image bearers of God. And we want to begin to just scratch the surface. And from these practices, for the rest of this year, what we're going to end up doing is uh, maybe starting next week or the next two weeks, we're going to have some guides and we're going to give emphasis uh, for a month or two on a particular practice and begin to help individuals, community groups, us on Sunday morning begin to sit in those practices, begin to have conversations, practice these things together. So for this month and for February, we're going to really give attention to prayer or the topic of our conversation today. We're also going to look at some other practices and we're going to weave those in through the rest of the year and give attention and begin to scratch the surface of what it means to be with Jesus, what it means to really be abiding in him. And we're looking at prayer today because if there's anything that truly marked Jesus' life, if you looked at the Gospels, it's prayer. In fact, if you, if you haven't started a Bible uh, reading plan this year, maybe you've never done this, if you've never tried to read whole sections of the Bible, it's never too late to start. You can start any time. I think one good way, if you've never done any extensive reading of Scripture in its entirety, is maybe just for this month. Try and read through the four Gospels. Or maybe for the next four months. Maybe just this month you read through Matthew. Next month you read Mark, Luke, John. Just make your way and look at who Jesus is. 
And if you do that, you'll see one of the things that explicitly marks the way that Jesus lived. Whenever he woke up in the morning, whether he was overwhelmed or late at night, it's just so clear and so explicit in the Gospels. It's prayer. Just a couple examples in Luke's Gospel before we get to chapter 11. If you look at chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, But now, even more the report about him went abroad, and a great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of the infirmities. If you became very popular, if, if your fame grew, if your leadership expanded, what would you do? You would tell everyone about it. You would bask in it. You would feel really good about yourself. Look how Jesus responds. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. This is a regular occurrence for Jesus. People would gather around him, he'd do great ministry, and then he'd just run away and be by himself and pray. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray in prayer to God. And so there are times we find Jesus asleep, like in the, the boat where they're having this crazy storm, but then sometimes Jesus stayed up all night and prayed. This is one of the main explicit ways that Jesus, being fully human, lived his life. He prayed regularly. And it wasn't something that he had to do because it was listed in the the list of good things to do for a, a Jewish person or a rabbi. No, if you look at how he prays, it's very much like he enjoys prayer. He wants to pray. He needs prayer. And I need to say that because any sermon on prayer, for the most part, if, we, if you ever hear a teaching or you ever try and learn about prayer, actually, one really good book. Just I don't have it on the screen. Sorry, I, I did bring it, though. But if you want a good book to recommend, if you want to start somewhere on prayer, it's a very simple title, How to Pray. It's very easy to remember. The guy's name is Pete Gregg. It's a couple years old. It's a very, I love the uh, subtitle, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And I'm a normal person. Even though I'm a pastor, I'm still a normal person who struggles with prayer. In fact, I made it my goal every single day from Monday through Saturday this week to have a one-minute prayer time, a five-minute prayer time, and a one-hour prayer time. And I can tell you, it's hard work. And it's something that I needed, though. And I experienced something this past week, giving myself to that, that I have not in months as I intentionally gave myself to be with God. And I did it out of this learning, because I need to learn. I'm not a perfect human. But for Jesus, he prayed. Not because he had to, but because he was experiencing God in those places. And that's one thing we need to get about prayer. It's not an end. I think a lot of us think about prayer as, we just need to do this because the pastor said so. Or this is the good Christian thing to do. Or it's a good religious thing to do. But no, prayer is not the end. Prayer is the means by which you experience God. And so do you see Jesus enjoy it, need it, regularly do it because that's where he experienced the Father. And that's what we all need as well. But most of us, we hear a sermon on prayer, and we're like, man, I, I don't think anyone would raise their hands. I'm not going to ask this for real, but like if I was to ask, how many of you are doing amazing in prayer? Like almost no one, will, I mean, no one will admit it, right? I mean, even if you are amazing at prayer, the humble person won't raise their hands to say it. Because, but when we hear this sermon on prayer, all of us know we struggle with prayer. And we know it's all hard. As I made those commitments this past week, we have phones, right? All of us have some kind of device at 
It's attached to our pocket, to our bag, to our purse. It's with us, and you have access to the world all the time. You have, you have the new show that just showed up on Disney+, Plus, and so you just binged Boba Fett this past week, or you are into Cobra Kai, and you watched it on Netflix, and you have social media to keep up with. You have classes to get back to. You have to you know, take your kids, if you're a parent, to get their COVID test because they're exposed. I mean, there's all these things, and you're just busy. We so need prayer, don't we? And that's what I want to look at. Just beginning to look at this because there's so much we need to understand about prayer. In fact, as I looked at it, I realized I can't smash. I'm probably already doing too much to try and smash into this one short sermon. I am going to come back to prayer as a sermon series later this year, looking at different kinds of prayer, looking at the different questions about prayer because I realized one of the things I can't even address here is what about unanswered prayer? And that's a really deep, important question. But I want to just scratch the surface. Looking at this practice of prayer. It's an important thing here. Because if you look at how the disciples respond, teach us to pray. Of all the things you see in the Gospels, this is the only time you see the God, the, a disciple say, teach me something. And it's to teach me to pray. Because they saw in Jesus, in his prayer life, they saw something was happening. Because when Jesus got away in prayer, things were changing. Jesus was literally transformed at a time when he gathered to pray. And so they wanted to know how Jesus prayed. And we need to learn because we need to experience a connection and intimacy with the Lord of Lord and Lord of hosts. Now, I'm going to kind of structure this sermon off of three points with lovely alliteration because I love that. But first one is the problem of prayer. And because we all have problems with prayer, there's a pattern that Jesus gives to us when it comes to prayer. And just very briefly, because I can't talk about prayer without talking about somewhat about asking, and it's in this passage, petitioning the Lord in prayer. So the problem, the pattern, and a petition. So the problem first, it's just hard, isn't it? All of us have a hard time. And I just want to really look objectively at the difficulties first, and then look at why that is for a second. I mean, do you realize 2017, this is now feeling very old, it's not that old, but in 2017, researchers uncovered, and this is 2017, remember this, people touch their phones on average of 2,617 times a day. And the top 10% of people at that time touched their phones 5,427 times a day. iPhone users unlocked their phones 80 times a day. And the average American in 2017, remember this is five years ago now, used their phone Five hours a day. You know, if you have an iPhone, I probably have this on Android phones too, but you have that, that thing that can tell you how many hours a day you use your phone. You remember when you first installed that new OS update and it actually was automatically on? What did we all do? Because we're all guilty. We just turned that thing off. Because it actually, and this amazing thing is, for me at least, it starts it on Sunday. So let me look at this. Is it, did it pop up this day? Oh yeah, there it is. I spent an average of six hours and 23 minutes on my phone. And this was me intentionally praying one minute, five minute, and one hour this week. I don't know how many of you lead that thing on, but it's, it's very guilt-ridden at times. So I'm actually higher than the average in 2017. So maybe I'm on the low or medium. I have no idea if you were to actually lead that thing on, how many time, hours a day you're using. Or I don't know if it does it count say if you're using music, whatever. I don't know how it does that. I don't think I was on my phone that much, but I must be on my phone that much because it's objective. It's not lying to me. But you realize companies are spending 
Billions. Literally billions of dollars on marketing and research and development to get your eyes, views, and attention. One of the things that business uh, economists are talking about into the future of where money is found is the economy of attention. Because think about how you are engaging in the world today. And think about where people can sell you things. And think about where people want to be able to market things. Attention is now very, very valuable. You buy the phone for a, a good amount of money, but you realize that phone's not working for you. You're working for someone else who lives in Silicon Valley because it's trying to take all of your attention. And actually, all of that, and we don't put it in this language, all of this is, is discipleship. And so the reason we struggle to have intimacy with God at times is because our discipleship is so limited with Jesus. We have so many other things in our lives that are constantly feeding us, discipling us, gathering our attention. I remember a time in my life where something existed that I don't think exists in today's vocabulary. I remember a time when you could be bored. You realize Boredom is really not talked about way too much today anymore. Because I remember a time before smartphones. I actually have my desk across the street. My, one of my last phones before I got, my very first smartphone was a BlackBerry. But like, I, if you remember those, but I had this flip phone, right? You know, those things that open and it didn't have really a screen. And if you texted, it cost like 25 cents. So you never did it. And if you log into the internet, it would cost like $1,000, right? It used to be such a luxury to log into the internet on your device. But you used, I remember being bored. You know, you had to wait in Safeway lines, cause, and I avoid Safeway lines because they're so long, right? They're just ridiculous. But you have those tabloids there as you're checking out, and because you don't have a device to look at, and you don't really want to talk to the people you're waiting in line with, you just have to look at those tabloids and be entertained by how weird the, the titles are. When's the last time you looked at that thing? Because right now, everyone's like this. I was at a gymnastics class for Sayla. She just started her first one yesterday. And they only allow parents of like little kids to be there. And I, I, I was tempted to take a picture. I didn't want to be a weird guy, though. But there's like 12 parents just sitting there. And every single person the entire time was just looking at their phone. Entire time. Because I remember what it was like to be bored. Remember you used to be on a plane? And if you went even to New York from here, right? You had a six-hour flight. And... You brought a book, and eventually, maybe even if you had a Game Boy, right? You, had all, you brought all these batteries to make sure you could recharge it or whatever. And eventually on a plane, especially if you took an international flight, even if you brought all these books, magazines, music to listen to, you had to carry so many things with you, right, before, you eventually got bored. But now people don't get bored in the same way. You know, we're wealthier than we ever, and actually that wealth just continues for most of us in the Western world. And even if you don't feel wealthy, you, we in the West and in the San Francisco Bay Area, we're wealthier than most of the people throughout history. We, we don't need to pray because money can solve that problem. We're so busy. Do you realize most of the time when you ask someone how they're doing, whether you know them really well or maybe you don't know them very well, besides just saying, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm great, those very generic terms that they'll use, most of the time the next thing they'll say is, I'm very busy. I'm busy. And that's busyness across every single person from every single age, no matter life stage, as long as you're in high school, right? Everyone's busy, constantly busy, never-ending busyness. And so prayer is so hard, even though we need it so much. 
And Luke addresses this kind of difficulty from a different kind of angle, and I think it's important when to learn, but he sees as a problem that needs to be addressed by prayer as well. You realize in the Gospels, these stories are not written in chronological order of Jesus' life. And so the author of each Gospel is different because they're trying to arrange their letter for a particular purpose. And so you often have to pay attention to the sections and the ordering because the order also makes a difference. And so Matthew's Gospel, one of the main ways you look at Matthew's Gospel is that it's, it goes from five different main movements of narrative, stories, and then teaching. Narratives, teaching. It's like five times it does that. But Luke's Gospel, you hear chapter 11 comes immediately after chapter 10, that last section we briefly looked at with Mary and Martha, and Martha kind of being kind of challenged that she's distracted. And you have to see this section on prayer is an answer to the difficulty and problems and distraction that Martha has. That isn't just Martha's problem, it's our problem too. Martha's a very contemporary woman, if you look at her. She's a very typical, driven, ambitious, San Francisco City woman. She's presented, if you look at her, as a person in charge. She's in charge of the household. She's goal-oriented. She can lead. She can take care of herself. She's an SF woman. She, if she lived in the middle of the country of the United States, she would have been the woman who moved to New York, moved to Chicago, or moved to a big city, while her sister Mary would have stayed in the middle of the country. Yet, for all of her strength, all of her ability, all her goal orientation, look at what Jesus says to her. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. She's ambitious, she's strong, she can lead a house, she's driven, and yet, in despite all of that, she's anxious, uh, troubled about many things. She's having a spiritual crisis that so many of us have. And so many of us experience exactly what Martha's difficulties and problems are. When we experience all this busy, distraction, overwhelmed life, she's also alienated from people. Right? Even though we're the most connected people on the face of the earth now, with all the ways that we can do that, don't, do you feel like many people are recognizing, more lonely than ever, more disconnected than ever. But Mary here, or Martha, sorry, is alienated from her sister. She's mad at her sister. She's like, you're, you're not being like me. She's mad at Mar- Mary for not being like her, not as busy as her, not as ambitious, not helping. And she's also mad at Jesus. Look at verse 40. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me out. So she's Anxious, she's also alienated from her sister. She's also alienated and angry at God. And she's angry at God because her way of relating to God isn't out of this relationship like a vine and branches. It isn't an intimacy. It's, God, you're supposed to do what I know is right. It's an expression of her control. That's why she goes to God, you're supposed to make this happen. Like, this is the way life is supposed to be. We're supposed to be busy doing things, ordering things, ambitious. She's controlling her life. But instead of her, but Martha was distracted with much serving. We can be distracted in so many ways, but so many of us who are followers of Jesus, maybe for long periods of time, one of the ways that Christians get distracted is that we go about religious activity, serving, doing religious things out of a means of control. We are trying to control God to do what we need. 
And that maybe that's why so many people struggle with unanswered prayer, because prayer is not actually relating to God, asking for his will to be done. It's actually a way to cajole a genie to make something happen that you know is right. And so sometimes in all this well-intentioned effort and busyness and activity, what we're actually trying to do is make God do what we think is right in the world. Because in our pride, we think we're right. We never have the the audacity to say that out loud, but that's how Martha's functioning. Maybe that's how we are. And I can say that because I really, as I was praying this week, saw that in me. How hard it is for me sometimes to not answer an email. How hard it is not for me to enter into a problem and try and make it right because I know how it should be right and how much I want to exert myself onto something to make it exactly how it's supposed to be. Chapter 11, you have to see and we haven't even gotten to the teaching on prayer yet, is an answer to this problem. All of us feel distracted. All of us feel anxious. All of us feel overwhelmed. Different ways, yes. But the answer to that is prayer. Prayer not as a thing just to do, but as a, as a door to access the living God, to have him overwhelm us and not be overwhelmed by our circumstances. Now that's the problem. Let's look at the pattern of prayer that's supposed to help us access God. Look at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. The answer to your anxiety, your busyness, your alienation with people, and your anger and frustration with God is prayer. It's an intimacy with God. It's abiding with Him. Not just doing for God, not just to get stuff from God, but actually just to be with God. Now, looking at this prayer, if you were to read this, maybe you realize, oh, aren't some words missing? Because most of us memorize the Lord's Prayer, which is actually more accurately described as the disciples' prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is John 17. That's Jesus' prayer for us. This is actually a prayer that's supposed to teach us to pray. But most of us memorize John, Matthew 6. And so some words are missing. Uh, it's probably, you know, you could call it in contemporary terms, a Cliff Notes version. But this prayer was not meant to actually be given to the disciples, to us, to be a, a verbatim memory that we just recite, that we just kind of say, just to say words. It's not a magical, spiritual incantation that we say and all of a sudden, Woo, like God does what we want. That's not actually how this prayer was given to us. It's not unlocking a genie lamp. It's actually meant to be a template. It's meant to be a pattern. There are truths locked into this prayer and Matthew's version that actually teach us, here's how you be with God. As Jesus was someone who was with God constantly, here's how you begin to do it. Here's what you need to, to practice in your heart, in your mind, in your life. This is a pattern. And I think this pattern is what we begin, need to begin to work into ourselves. And so my challenge to you, just start today. Even if today, all you have, and I believe, I mean, if you don't have two minutes, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you have two minutes today. Even if you just take two minutes, 30 seconds, I'm going to give you four parts of this template, and you just sit in 30 seconds with each one of these, that's the start. Start with two minutes. But work, begin to practice this. 
Coming weeks, we'll give you some more guides on this. If you want to pick up this book, How to Pray, it does a little bit of that in here as well. But look at this template and begin to work it into your, your mind, your heart. Look at it, how it begins to reshape you. The first thing in this pattern is Father, the person that Jesus addresses, that he's guiding us to address. Jesus often referred to the first person in the Trinity as Father, and he wants us to do that as well. And I know immediately, when I say father, instead of, for most of us, I mean, some of us have great relationships with our dad, and this is not a problem at all. But I would say, I would, in my conversations with most people most of the time these days, most of the time we have significant father disconnects or wounds or difficulties. And so whether it's a father and there was some serious abuse or there was abandonment or he was there but not really there, because he was using his phone six hours a day. I was just a guilt for me and my kids. Uh, I mean, we have difficulty with our fathers. And I don't think some of us realize that. But I, here's my encouragement to you. It is worth spending the time and energy and intentionality and pressing into understanding God as Father. Because if you don't see God as Father, that's the thing he starts with. If you cannot feel and embrace and experience God as Father, you won't pray. And you won't experience God. It's, it's worth it. It's good to, to work through that. Even though we may have difficulties and trauma and emotional pain from our earthly fathers, it's worth it. Because if we don't see him right, we're not going to relate to God right. John Tyson, a pastor in New York, says, unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you will never be drawn to prayer. It's a powerful image he says next. The angels have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years and they haven't gone past the word holy. 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 If you're bored with God, I like what he says next, you may be the person who is boring. Or it could be that you're distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn into the glory who, of who God really is. How do you see God? If you think of God as a strict, militaristic disciplinarian, just waiting for you to make a stake and say, aha, there you go. See, that's why you're not getting what you need. And that's, not why, that's why I'm not answering your prayer, because you did that. Or you, see, you forgot to do that. If that's how you look at God. And some of us look at God that way. Because we had parents who were always looking to point out that B minus or that A minus or whatever. We're just looking for all the mistakes in our life. Honestly, some of us avoid family gatherings because all you're in your mind is like, they're going to make some comment about your looks. Asian parents are terrible, aren't they? Like, you're too skinny. You're too fat. You're never, nothing is right. Like, you're just wrong. And so you relate to your, if you relate to God like that, just waiting to point out all the things wrong in your life, why would you go to prayer? He's not like that. If you think of God as a, as a, a faraway CEO, I asked Jeanette once, she's been promoted, she's stayed in the same company for an entire time in her career. She stayed at the same, she's like, I think 17 years working at the same place. She's changed roles, places, but like, I asked her once, have you ever met the CEO? It's a big company. It's like, never once. I'm like, how do you be somewhere 17 years, you never had a conversation? I'm like, this is a big place, but maybe that's how some of us look at God. 
You could be somewhere, you could be a follower of Jesus for 20, 30 years, and you just think he's a far away, distant CEO, way too busy for you. And yeah, you have a mission, you're, you have your, your company's vision you're supposed to carry out, but you do your thing and he's just far away, distant, not relatable, doesn't have time for you. Or maybe you think of God as some kind of force, not personal, not intimate, kind of like Star Wars universe, right? It's just, it's just there. He's everywhere. You're, why would you pray to that? Or maybe I, I, I've been diving, diving in a little bit into the Marvel universe a little bit more. I found a storyline that was really interesting to me. I just learned about, if you're into, I'm nerding out a little bit, but if you, if you like this, I need to talk to you because I'm still learning. But there's a supercomputer in the Marvel universe called the World Mind, which is an amazing storyline. It's a collective, uh, sentient kind of brain that controls and protects the universe. It's calculating, but it's not intimate. It makes decisions sometimes that are going to just throw you away because you're the problem. Is that how you see God? If you see God in those terms, you don't see God as a father who just warmly wants to hug his children, who wants to be with his kids, who wants to listen to his kids. You won't pray to him. That's why we don't pray because we haven't seen him as a father. He's a good father. I mean, actually, this entire section on prayer presents Jesus or God, the Father, as Father. So he starts with Father in the prayer, and actually at the end, in that little weird thing we'll get to, he talks about asking God and what kind of Father. So this whole thing is about teaching us that he's a good Father. He's the kind of Father, you get home, and, and all the kids are running, and he picks you up. He holds you. He wants to hear you out. He wants to run after you if you've been away, throwing away your life for, for weeks, if not years. And he says, no, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. He's a Father. And it's worth, I know it's a struggle for some of us. It's worth pressing in and asking the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Lord as Father. You could spend weeks, you could spend the rest of your life trying to understand God as Father. Second, and it's not actually in the Luke version, except for in the footnote, but if you look at the Matthew version, after Father, it says, if you memorize the King James Version, who art in heaven who is in heaven. And here's an important part of that phrase, which I think is important to understand. Heaven does mean a new creation that's in the future to come. That is one way the Bible uses heaven. So we have the new heavens and new earth. But often the word heaven is actually plural, and what it means in the Bible is not this distant view of someone sitting on a cloud playing a harp. It's not some fantasy world with Lando Calrissian in a cloud city. It's not that. It's not a place you only go to when you die. Heaven, or heavens, plural in the Bible, is often used to describe now, the sky, it's the air, it's everywhere, it's here. And so yes, heaven does have a future orientation, yes, in the Bible, but often, and here in Luke's gospel and in the Lord's prayer, it's describing God as being everywhere. The Lord who is in heaven means the Lord is here. The Lord who is here, everywhere. It's not an expression of how far away God is, how most of us think about heaven. It's an expression of how close he is. So when you breathe the air, the heavens, he's here. That's why so many, and this is the world borrowing from what it means to be made in God's image. If you talk about what it means to draw close or be, to kind of have focus in your life, so much meditation stuff out there, they talk about breathing so much. Yeah, it sounds weird and hokey. Maybe you don't want to do it, but actually God made it. They think about how often the scriptures talk about your breath. 
And, and actually, it's the world that's stealing from God and borrowing from God what we're supposed to be. So you, you breathe and you're realizing God is here. Father's everywhere. You look at uh, Psalm 139, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? There's not a place in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that he is not. He's everywhere. And so this is something we need to, to grasp. The pattern of prayer, not only orienting ourselves to who God is, his character, what he's like, reorienting to his presence. He's everywhere. There's not a place that he cannot. And so we experience distance, and that's a real feeling. We can feel disconnected from God. It's a feeling that we have that's real. I want to acknowledge that. An experience that's real. And yet it's not true of God's real presence. And so there's a reason why he says, our Father who is in heaven, in the heavens, who is here. Have you noticed? And some of you will do this on retreat in a couple weeks. I, I pray you have time. And yes, retreats are a great time. You're with your friends. Your parents aren't there. And parents are excited because your kids are not there. Everyone's excited because they're away from each other. But here's the thing. You're hanging out with each other. You're staying up way too late. Except for you have bedtimes except for the last night probably or sometime. But here's what I want you to do. If you're hearing this right now, you're going to youth retreat. Please do this. Actually, I really strongly encourage you to do this. Because you're going to be away. Leave in the morning before you go to breakfast. Maybe brush your teeth. Maybe make sure you know, you've brushed your hair a little bit. But you don't have to do that. Who cares? Leave your phone. Go outside. Please bring a jacket. And walk around away from everyone. If you can do this early in the morning, even better, because it's quieter. But if you do it any time of the day, just do this. Leave your phone in your room, on your bed. Walk outside and ask God to meet you there. Pray, Father, who is in the heavens. Ask for him to meet you. He will meet you there. God is not just in the future. He is here. Hallowed. There's another part of the pattern. We never use this word hallowed. Uh, not really, actually. If you want to sound really spiritual, you can use this word. Uh, but no one ever uses this word. But it really means holy, right? It means set apart. Think about holiness for a second. And we use holy. Except for most of us only use holy for holy cow or holy something else in response to something that's amazing. But even that has a part of it that's true because holy is not limited to morality. It is moral. It means doing things that are pure and right and just. That's a part of the definition of holy. But holy, the reason the, the angels sing and they can't, don't get past the one word holy because holy means good, beautiful, incomparable, unique, separate. There's nothing like it. The reason the angels don't get past that word and that's the song we sing forever because God is beautiful, good, never ending in his awe. You ever see something beautiful and how struck you are by it? And then the next week you're like, this is not as amazing as I thought it was a week ago. But God's amazing, awe-inspiring, awe-inducing nature never ceases to amaze. And so when you are thinking about holiness, he's a father. He's intimate. He's here. He's everywhere. He's also the incomparable, awesome, amazing God who never ceases to attract you. You know, we're all beauty chasers, or you, you could say in the terms of this word, you're all chasing holiness. 
Because you're all looking. We're all, because we're made this way. You're chasing for something that captures your, who you are, that makes you feel and think and understand, like, that is amazing. We're all chasing that in our lives. And we get glimpses of that because God in his grace gives us glimpses of that. And he wants us to experience that most fully in himself because he is the only person that is the answer to all of that chasing. Pastor Tim Keller says in his book on prayer, another good book to recommend to you, just called Prayer if you want to look it up. To hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy towards God and even more a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal ways we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in the things as in how successful we are or in our social relationships or, I'd add, our health these days. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances or health are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. But the reason he says, hallowed or may your name be holy in the world, in my heart, in my imagination, is because we need beauty. We need amazing beauty, and it's found in God, and asking God to show us that part of who he is meets us in our deepest needs. The third, uh, sorry, the fourth part of this pattern, and notice, when I, I'll come to this in a second, but notice the fourth pattern is your kingdom come. So, Father, you're in heaven, you're everywhere. You may, you, may you be beautiful, awe-inspiring everywhere. Your kingdom come. This pattern hasn't even addressed anything we need yet. And if he's a good God, you realize he's always going to give us exactly what we need. Maybe what we most need is these things, to understand his Father, to see that he's everywhere and present, to understand that he's the most beautiful in his kingdom, his ways, his life to come. Non-Christians, obviously, are working to build someone else's kingdom, their own, someone else's. But what Christians don't often see and the reason we need this prayer, even if you're a professed follower of Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, is we are tempted, we're all susceptible to building our little kingdoms. All of us, if we're apart from Jesus, will build Babel. And you're probably doing it in some way in your life. See, what we want to do, and I see this, and I only can confess this because I see in my heart, how much do I want to build Joey's kingdom rather than Jesus? Because when you're praying, your kingdom come, it's fighting against the natural sinful tendency to build your kingdom, to use God to build what you think is right in this world. Why is there so many difficulties? Why is so much failure among church leaders, especially large churches these days? If you follow any Christian news, you see this everywhere, right? Because we use Jesus' name to build Joey kingdom. In our pride, we think we know what's right. <laughs> Do we, though? I thought of this interesting story. If you want to take this and run with it, if you're a writer or if you want to make movies or do anything, I would, I'll, I'll help you with this, but I would love for someone to do this because this satire would be amazing as a story. So this comes out later, not from us. I'd be kind of sad that we didn't create it, but if you are creative, you want to write this story, I'll help you do this. I think this would be, this would be so contemporary for our culture and so needed. Imagine, I don't, maybe someone did this already. I haven't done my research. Maybe someone did this already, but imagine... A story where God answers every one of your prayers. He never says no. Every single thing you ask is always granted. That would be the world's nightmare, wouldn't it? 
Think about what you asked when you were 16 years old. Oh my gosh, that's the love of my life. I'm going to marry her and never let me leave her. Do you ever pray, you ever pray something like that out loud or in your head or want that? As, do you remember your prayers? Those of us who are in our 20s and 30s back, you remember your teenage prayers? How silly it would be if every single one of those prayers were answered? How ridiculous, actually how terrible the world would be if God answered our prayers like that? So if you want to be a creative, you want to write that story, that would be an amazing thing. That would be kind of an interesting story to write. You're praying for those things. And maybe that's how we're relating to God. That's why we can't handle unanswered prayers. Maybe God's grace is to say, no, Joey, you're not going to marry that girl. (laughs) And he was so gracious to stop me from marrying certain girlfriends. Or maybe it's to give you something that's hard that you never would have asked for but it's actually the answer to the prayer that you made long ago. Your kingdom come. It's a direct fight against the tendency for us to build Babel out of our lives, to use God as a means to get what we want. Also, another thing about his kingdom, I really want to emphasize this. If you walk away with anything, hopefully you hear this, because I think this is what's been pressing in my heart the most this week. You realize when Jesus tells us in this pattern Pray your kingdom come. Pray for the Father's kingdom to come. That's not empty words. Again, it's also not an incantation we say to get what we want. But at the same time, what he's inviting us into is to change the world. By giving us this instruction, pray your kingdom come. He's telling us, as the scriptures tell us everywhere, prayer is a means by which God literally works out his way in the world. So when you pray prayers that are God-honoring, God-glorifying, that are out of your heart, you are literally changing the fabric of the world. Now, when I say that, I know, because I feel this in my own head, in my own heart, so many of us, that inner skeptic just writes, what are you talking about? I mean, if I prayed that, I mean, God would do that anyways, right? God could work outside of, what, my prayers do any? Do they do anything? God's the unchangeable person. He's not just going to do and work out His will. Yes, and God wills for His kingdom to come through your prayer. I had an amazing meeting one time. I was with a bunch of church planters, and we met with uh, a group of uh, people who have been praying since uh, post World War II. They've been San Francisco residents, and what's amazing about that meeting, I remember. They were sharing once because they've been praying for decades for revival in San Francisco. And they experienced it in pockets through the Jesus movement a little bit. And they saw that was the answer to prayer. But, and we sat in that room with a bunch of people who are looking to start churches in the Bay Area. And they said, we have been praying for over 30 years and you are the answer to that prayer. Those prayers brought those people into this place that needs more churches. Do you realize God's inviting us in his grace, in his mercy, this awesome privilege of ushering in his kingdom here through our prayers, through our prayers. But here's how most of us think the kingdom comes in. And I, I, I'm, this is my confession. This is why it's an important part for me. I think the kingdom comes when I'm really diligent with my time and that I spend enough time in meetings and making sure things are done right, 
I make sure that I'm spending time to manage my budget well. I'm making sure I, I spend enough time to develop leaders, and I'm reading, and I'm studying, and I'm meeting with people. I, I think fundamentally by my activity and my calendar that the kingdom of God is ushered in to my effort, distracted with much serving. But remember how God's kingdom comes. I love the children's Bibles whenever they get to this story because it's illustrated. It's such a powerful thing when you can think about it in illustration. But, you know, when, they're, when the people of God, Israel, are entering into the promised land, one of the first things they come to, against is, and you see the story of Jericho and these strong people with huge walls. You know, and I love my kids because they were asking this question in the, in the Bible they're reading. Like, at, at they walk around, right? Seven days. They're making loud noise. Seven days. And they ask the question, how did the walls fall? And I love how that gets to the heart of it. And we know the answer. Right? We know it's not their loud music. We know it's not what... I mean, obviously, it's designed to be foolish. I mean, what army defeats another army with instruments and walking around? No, it's the Lord. And yet we think that our activity, our strength, our intuition, our intelligence can drive the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God is ushered in through our dependence and our asking. Asking for his kingdom to come. It's amazing. Jesus is telling us your prayers literally change the working out of his kingdom in this world. I like what one pastor, author says, Sky Jathani, he says, we are not merely passive set pieces in a prearranged cosmic drama but we are active participants with God in the writing, directing, design, and action that unfolds. Prayer, therefore, is much more than asking God for this or that outcome. It is drawing into communion with him and there taking up our privileged role as his people. In prayer, we are invited to join him in directing the course of his world. And you want to know how I know this is true? Go back to Genesis. Remember what God said before sin into the world, what he said to Adam and Eve, what he said to man? You will rule. You will shape this world. You will make my kingdom in this creation. That's true. And how we do that now is dependently in prayer. Now, just briefly, because of time, I want to talk about petitioning. And we actually need to spend much more time on this, but I can't talk about prayer without what it means to ask, especially in this passage, because it's really about asking here too. But I want to make sure that pattern's there. Now, whether it's two minutes two hours this week, whatever you have, begin to work that pattern into your life. Father, you're everywhere. You're holy. Your kingdom come. Let that seep into who you are. But what it means to ask, because he does tell us to ask for some things. Notice, though, it comes after who God is. Most of us start with stuff. But you notice if you pray and all of your prayers are always stuff, realize you're praying to an American dream God not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible teaches us to pray, and he says, this is how you connect to the Lord of Lords, is through this way. Not just ver verbatim repeating this phrase, it's a magical incantation, but this is how you shape how you relate to God. But notice, he does tell us we are to ask for things, but look at what he says to ask for, verses 3 to 4. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, after this, I'll come back to this in a second. 
verses 5 to 13, just in brief. It's really about this really kind of silly story about someone being woke, like someone having a visitor at midnight and needing to feed him and help him. Now, what you need to understand about this story, and it's an amazing story, is that hospitality is one of the highest values in their culture. It's a huge value. If you don't practice hospitality, you don't show hospitality, that's something that's going to cause you shame in the entire community. If you knock on someone's house at midnight today, most likely the person in that house is going to grab whatever thing near their bed is the best kind of defensive weapon, whatever they have next to their bed. But in their culture, they wake them up. They're, they're called by their culture to help. And remember, this is because they don't have 24-hour grocery stores or convenience stores, and they have to ask someone else because they don't have enough food to help with caring for someone who's visiting them in the middle of the night. But also understand, when you go knock on someone's door in their time, they don't live in multi-room houses. They live in a one-room house. And so when he says his children are in his bed because families would stay together until they're married, they would literally, because they would all be in the same room. So if you wake up a dad, you're waking up the family. And if the, the network of their community is so tightly knit, they would be waking up the whole community. And this would be a huge problem. But the point of that entire story, to sum it up, is to ask. It won't be because of friendship, the story says. But the, he will answer it. And all that's saying, because they would all get this in their culture. We don't get this as much. But he's teaching us. Be bold. That word impudent, we never use that word either. But it means shameless, audacious, to, to not stop. And you know how you should ask for God? Shamelessly. Unendingly. Boldly. It says ask, seek, knock. To not stop. The tense of those words is to continue, to persevere, to never stop. Think about fathers who are good fathers. Think about God, our Father, who's perfectly good. He wants to love his kids. Think about good fathers. If you're a father here, you understand this. You want to give your kids what you want, that they want, as best as you can. Look at verses 13, uh, 11 to 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil, I love how honest Jesus is, right? He's, you guys are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to ask those who ask him? Seems weird, right? I, who asks for a fish? Who asks for an egg? But I remember my parents telling me stories because they grew up, my mom did actually, especially in poverty, that she used to tell me the story, really to guilt me actually though, but like she would say on my birthday is the only time I got, a, I got really protein in my regular diet and I would ask for an egg. So like kids, I think they're asking because there's a there's a wanting, because they wouldn't eat protein regularly in their diet either. But it's funny, I was thinking about this. This is a silly thing, right? But my kids actually ask me for fish and egg regularly in my life. They ask me for fish all the time, because my kids love sushi, which is kind of insane. But I love this, actually, because my wife loves sushi. I actually, I really can't do sushi much, because I've had way too many stomach problems from eating sushi in my experience. But like, I, I kind of like that my kids like sushi, especially since I have two little daughters, because I want to make them undateable. Like, this is how you become a good dad of little girls. You make them so expensive that no one can date them. That's how you protect them. So they ask me for fish. Oh, they're asking for, I'm like, I cannot give you, I, we, we don't, we're not made of money. I can't just keep giving you fish all the time. But my little daughter actually asked me for, I'm glad that she likes egg, not just fish. So she asked me for egg. She, they asked me this morning because I make this very simple, plain omelet, just egg, nothing really else in it. My younger one loves just a little bit of cheese in it. She asks for cheese egg regularly. And I just make, and I'm like rushing to try and get ready for church. And she's like, can you make me cheese egg? I'm like, how am I going to say no to this little 
four-year-old just asking me for cheese egg in the morning. I mean, I want to help her. Even though I'm rushing, I'm like, where's my book? And I'm running around in, in the morning. Maybe they're asking for pets, right? I don't know. Maybe this is, I don't know. This is a funny story, but here's the point. If we as earthly fathers long to love our children and give them good gifts, how much more the infinitely good, infinitely powerful God wants to give? And the problem is, I think too many of us don't ask. You ask. It doesn't seem to happen the way you want. You keep asking. You try. You hear a sermon on prayer. Like, I'm going to ask. And you try for a week. You stop asking. I've been asking you to help my dad know Jesus for 30 years. Come on. We stop asking. But this passage is reminding us, ask, ask, ask. Ask your father who's a good father who loves you deeply. He's a good God. He's one who we know in scripture because we know the whole picture who would not even withhold his son for you, who's given us his Holy Spirit. That's why it's amazing at the end, right? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Right, they're asking for fish and egg. We're asking for stuff. And that's what we mostly ask for. God gives all of himself to us. And that is true. Right now, he's given all of himself to you. I pray as we're beginning to practice prayer together, you would experience more of how much he loves you, cares for you, wants to be with you, and that would begin to shape how you want to be with him. Because if you want an answer to your anxiety, your anger, your alienation, your frustration with people, with God, with your life, it is actually through connecting with your heavenly Father who loves you. Let's pray together. And would you take a moment just to maybe let those patterns shape you, even if it's just one, but just take a minute, whether it's the Father being everywhere or his holiness or his kingdom, let this pattern seep into your soul right now. Lord, you are a good, present Father. And yet I know I can feel it in myself and in the life of our church that that is not something we feel very near to at times. Maybe right now, experiencing death and disconnection from COVID or just frustration with everything that's all around us, Lord. We don't feel like you are good at times. And so would you be here? Would you break through? Would your Holy Spirit break through to help us hear, to know, to feel you in all of who you are in your beauty? Father, for my friends who are overwhelmed, many of us feel overwhelmed, may they be reminded of your presence in the heavens everywhere. There's no place on earth that you can go where you are not. No place in eternity we can go where you are not. 
May that help us to put into perspective everything that we are facing so that we would be overwhelmed not by this earthly existence, but by you. Oh, help us to see your kingdom. We want, we, we so try to see justice in our world or see good or see right things done. And yet, Father, help us because we so often just build our own kingdoms. Help us to believe that by our prayers, your kingdom comes. We ask for that, Lord. We need that in our lives, in our church. San Francisco, the Bay Area needs your kingdom here. In Jesus' name, amen.